Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Friday's White House working visit by Germany's Chancellor Scholz and assess whether Germany can persuade its biggest trading partner, China, to bring Russia to the peace table to end the war in Ukraine. Joining us is Stephen Walt, a columnist at Foreign Policy magazine and the Robert and Renee Belfer Professor of International Affairs at Harvard University. He is the author of a number of books, including The Origins of Alliances, Revolution and War, and Taming American Power, The Global Response to U.S. Primacy. His latest book is The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. And his latest article at Foreign Policy magazine is The Conversation About Ukraine is Cracking Apart, and we'll discuss whether China might be happy with the U.S. bogged down in a war in Europe and not so focused on containing China in the Indo-Pacific. Then we'll look into a letter to the leaders of the House and Senate from 20 economists, including former chairs and vice chairs of the Fed, as well as five Nobel laureates that urged Congress to raise the debt ceiling to avoid a dangerous and unnecessary economic crisis. Joining us is Betsy Stevenson, a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan. She's also a faculty research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, a visiting professor of economics at the University of Sydney, a research fellow at the Center for Economic Policy Research, a fellow at the IFO Institute for Economic Research in Munich, and serves on the Executive Committee of the American Economic Association. She served as a member of the Council on Economic Advisers from 2013 to 2015, where she advised President Obama on social policy, labor markets, and trade issues, and also served as the Chief Economist of the United States Department of Labor from 2010 to 2011, advising the Secretary of Labor on labor policy and participating as the Secretary's Deputy to the White House economic team. Then finally, we'll go to Mexico to get a different perspective on the demonstrations that took place a week ago against President López Obrador, known as AMLO's Plan B reforms of the National Election Institute, or INE, which the American press portrayed as a power grab by AMLO instead of demonstrations organized by the opposition. Joining us is John Mill Ackerman, an author as well as the director of the University Program of Studies on Democracy, Justice and Society, researcher at the Institute for Legal Research and editorial director of the Mexican Law Review of the National Autonomous University of Mexico. He has contributed to many publications in the U.S., Mexico and the U.K., on the topics of corruption control, elections, transparency, accountability, autonomous institutions, and citizen participation. And we'll discuss how the INE, unlike voting laws in the U.S., has made voting easier with a national ID card, removed money from campaign advertising, and provided quick and accurate counts of results. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news 
as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Stephen Walt, a columnist at Foreign Policy Magazine and the Robert and Rene Belfer Professor of International Affairs at Harvard University. He's the author of a number of books, including The Origins of Alliances, Revolution and War, Taming American Power, The Global Response to U.S. Primacy. And his latest book is The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. And his latest article at Foreign Policy Magazine is The Conversation About Ukraine is Cracking Apart. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Walt. Nice to be back with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Stephen. And I know you were at the um, Munich Security Conference a couple of weeks ago. But uh, let's talk about Friday's meeting at the White House between Chancellor Schultz and President Biden. It was a low-key event, no pomp and ceremony, no big stuffs, no press conference, just the two of them in the Oval Office. What do you think uh, was achieved in that private conversation? Well, of course, it's hard to know exactly what each leader said to the other, but uh, the mere fact that the German chancellor came to Washington uh, to have a you know, one-on-one meeting with President Biden uh, was, I think, a way of trying to signal that uh, NATO and the transatlantic alliance is still uh, you know, fully unified, fully committed to achieving success uh, in Ukraine, and that there's not a lot of daylight between Berlin and Washington on this issue. Uh, The fact that they're not sharing a lot of details about it uh, is maybe a little disappointing, but I think that was the main purpose here. Um, There may have been some uh, efforts on the American side to try and you know, accelerate uh, the German commitment to rearmament and to, uh, you know, doing a a real full reversal of uh, what had been their foreign policy. But again, we don't know that because we weren't in the room. But in your article at Foreign Policy, the conversation about Ukraine is cracking apart. You conclude with saying that what worries me is the Biden administration's rhetorical support for Ukraine keeps increasing and continues to promise us some sort of happy Hollywood ending. But if in February of 2024, a year from now, there's still a brutal stalemate and Ukraine is being destroyed, then Biden will face pressure either to do more to look for a plan B. And given what he's promised, anything less than a complete victory will look like failure. And of course, we don't know what China is going to do in terms of helping out Russia. And if China does cross that line, then the U.S. will impose sanctions on China, and then we'll have suddenly uh, supply chains problems. The shelves in Walmart will be bare, and the Republicans will be piling on. So not just Schultz, but Biden has surely has an incentive to want to end this war. And I don't know how you end this war, because I think Putin is in there for the long war. I think that's his strategy. Yeah, I think there's no question about that. And certainly ending this war is, I think, much more difficult than people across the board uh, uh, recognize. Uh, Certainly the people who are all in, who think the the United States and the West have to give Ukraine everything it asks for uh, until it can liberate all of its territory uh, all the way back to the 2014 lines, uh, do not understand what that ultimately is going to mean. It will mean uh, prolonging the war. It increases the risk of escalation. And even if Ukraine received everything they've asked for, it's not at all clear that they could achieve that militarily. Not that that wouldn't be desirable. It's not a question of what we might all like to see, uh, but just what's actually uh, physically possible for them uh, to do on the battlefield. 
By the same token, those who uh, who claim, well, we need to get to negotiations, we need to start talking now. I think they're right. If we could uh, begin talks, that would be good. But on the other hand, those talks are not going to be easy. Uh, it's going to take a long time to work out any kind of arrangement that either side would be willing to accept and be willing to live with. So uh, calling for peace talks is no panacea. It doesn't get us out of this. This is going to be a very uh, difficult war uh, to bring to an end. And the point of my one of the central points of my piece was simply that there is a, a bit of a gap between the sort of public rhetoric that you hear and especially from the upper reaches of the administration, the president, the vice president, uh, secretary of state Blinken. There's a gap between what they say in public and what lots of people say in private. Uh, where they are not as optimistic, not that Ukraine is going to lose, but rather Ukraine is not necessarily going to win in some kind of, as I put it, you know, wonderful end of real Hollywood ending where the good guys get everything they want and the bad guys, uh, you know, are punished, held accountable and held, uh, you know, held for war crimes trials. However desirable that might be, that's probably not where we're going to end up. And when we don't end up there, that's going to be a harder one for the Biden administration to explain. So, but surely when Putin says that he's fighting Nazis and that it's an artificial, unreal country and it should be a part of Russia, and furthermore, the greatest geopolitical tragedy in history was the collapse of the Soviet Union, I th think he believes that. And I think you have to take him at his word. And it seems to me that He's perfectly happy with a long, cold war, isn't he? Because the next move that seems to be afoot in Russia, given what we're hearing about these so-called attacks inside Russian territory that Putin is playing up as terrorist acts, they may well be FSB provocations, but there might well be at some time soon a false flag operation. After all, Putin came to power by blowing up a bunch of apartment buildings, killing hundreds of Russians. Uh, if something like that is done another false flag, killing a bunch of Russians, blaming it on the Ukrainian Nazis, then he can have martial law. And then I just don't see any possibility of peace. So the only straw we seem to be able to grasp is China. And what do you think Schultz and, and Biden had to say about China? I know Schultz has been working with the Chinese, trying to encourage them to, to come up with a peace plan. Well, there's a lot in all of that. I mean, uh, let's start with, with Putin. I actually don't believe uh, Putin wanted to go to war. Um, I think uh, that he chose to do so, and the responsibility is his. But I think this was something that uh, Russia uh, decided upon somewhat reluctantly, but also with a degree of overconfidence, where they thought it was going to be relatively easy, and this was going to be the way that they could finally stop what they regarded as the steady encroachment of the world's most powerful military alliance, uh, now getting ready to um, incorporate Ukraine, if not as a formal member, as a de facto member. Uh, remember, the United States and others had been training the Ukrainian military from 2014 on, and it was getting uh, more capable. The uh, Ukrainian position towards uh, the Russians, towards the negotiations over the Donbass was hardening uh, as well. So I think this was not something Putin necessarily you know, wanted to do. Um, but uh, ultimately felt he had to do and felt that he could do. He could pull it off relatively easy. The West wouldn't respond. The Ukrainians wouldn't fight very hard, etc. And in all of those things, of course, he's been greatly disappointed. 
uh, to the point where this war, regardless of how it turns out, has uh, been much more costly to Russia than I think he ever anticipated, which is why I think, uh, provided uh, you know Ukraine can be supported and is not defeated, eventually Russia will be willing uh, to cut some kind of deal. The precise terms of that deal, uh, you know, obviously remain to be determined. The Chinese position is a little bit more complicated. I think this is actually quite an awkward one uh, for China because they are associated, uh, of course, with Russia uh, closely. Um, they've not condemned the invasion in any uh, explicit way. It has shown that their most important ally is not as militarily capable as they might have uh, believed. And so the Chinese have tried to walk a rather uh, fine line here. I, I think they are, uh, re- will be reluctant to give a lot of material support or any material support uh, to Russia for that reason. So, remember, the Chinese are busy trying to get their economy restarted. And they've been engaged in something of a charm offensive towards Europe lately. Uh, moving closer to Moscow right now is a good way to derail that for a, for a good long time. Uh, you could even make the argument that it is in the Chinese interest for this thing to just go on for a long time. Huge distraction for us, huge distraction for Europeans. We won't be able to do as much in Asia as we might have wanted to do. And so from a, a really ruthless Chinese perspective, doing nothing to uh, help Russia win and doing nothing to settle the war might actually be their, uh, their most you know, attractive play. Uh, I can spend some alternatives to that, but I think that uh, you certainly have to take that possibility seriously as well. So given that China is Germany's biggest trading partner, how much do you think China is, or Xi Jinping, is concerned about brand China? In other words, they're obviously, just as there were in Russia, some competing interests about the business community not wanting war and the nationalist military people wanting war. I think the same dichotomy is in China. And I'm wondering whether that is something that's weighing on Xi Jinping. He comes out of a military background. I think he has a high school education and his degree was in ideology. I just don't know how much he's concerned about brand China. But are you satisfied that the economies of the West and China are so integrated that the business community would not want to lose their markets in Europe? Yeah, I, I think in both cases, they would like to preserve those connections. And it's worth remembering, you know, we've been getting very tough with China in a variety of ways over the last two years, if not before that. And yet the United States and China continue to trade quite extensively uh, with each other. So our business community doesn't really want to see a, a cold war there either. I mean, I think those are all reasons why China is unlikely to go all in in supporting, uh, supporting Russia. You could even argue that China may have an opportunity here uh, going forward to try and represent itself as an honest broker. Uh, And they did float what you might consider to be a kind of peace plan a couple of weeks ago. It's not very detailed. It's not likely to go anywhere. Uh, But it did suggest that the Chinese could sort of represent themselves as saying, look, we have good relations with Moscow. We have good relations with the rest of the world. You Western countries have gotten yourselves in a a huge uh, conflict yet again. We will step in and help you get out of it. 
And then, of course, they go around to the rest of the world and represent themselves as the peacemakers. Now, to do that, of course, you actually have to deliver something like a meaningful peace. And it's not clear that they could, they could do that. But it seems to me it's in China's interest to stay out of this one uh, as much as possible and to put itself forward as a country that would just like to see peace uh, here. That's all it wants anywhere in the world. And if called upon by the uh, warring parties to help broker a deal, then it stands ready to do so. That actually might be a very uh, you know, clever position for the Chinese to take. Not so much out of philanthropy, uh, philanthropy but out of a sense of self-interest. So, Stephen Wall, going back to what you said earlier, that Putin didn't want to go to war, but was somewhat forced into it and thought it would, he could pull it off, and obviously it backfired. And now they're trying to take uh, Bakhmut, hoping to draw in the Ukrainian reserve army, which is waiting for a counteroffensive. And sort of the Ukrainian B team are fighting back in a, in a way that's pretty surprising, holding back Russia's A team. So and militarily, it's, it's not looking that great, although the Ukrainians are obviously suffering enormous casualties. And all of, all of the weaponry that the U.S. promises, along with ammunition, seems to take a long time to get there. So as you pointed out earlier from your recent trip to the Munich Security Conference, that in private, they're not quite as jingoistic and upbeat about Ukraine. And you've got the chairman of the Joint Chiefs saying Ukraine has already won the war on, and Russia's already lost the war on all counts. So let's focus a little bit on, on uh, in the last couple of minutes, on 2014. My understanding about what happened in the Maidan had more to do with Ukraine wanting to join the EU as opposed to NATO. Well, um, yes, but uh, the United States had unwisely proposed Ukraine for NATO membership back in 2008. Uh, that was the official NATO position that Ukraine would eventually join, if not uh, soon. And that uh, that position was never altered. Um, and uh, we never took that back off the table, even after, um, you know, then in 2014, Russia uh, seized Crimea. Uh, certainly the EU accession agreement was the pretext or the precipitating event uh, for the Maidan uh, uprising. Uh, and this is seen by Russia, of course, as a coup. I think that's a, a, an erroneous statement. But on the other hand, it did. Uh, it was the ouster of a democratically elected leader, however corrupt he might have been. Uh, and it was a, a violent uprising. And the United States was openly supporting it, at least rhetorically. Uh, American Assistant Secretary of State, you know, they're handing out pastries to the demonstrators, etc. Um, so, again, our, we're not completely blameless in all of this, even if we uh, we hold Putin responsible for the actual war. Uh, in terms of 2014, I just wanted to say that, you know, the Russia, the, you may have the Ukrainian B team here, but we have the Russian B team, too. Uh, the Russians have lost uh, a lot of their best trained troops, best uh, commanders. Uh, they've suffered uh, quite badly. And what they've done now is, is mobilize their own B team uh, going up against uh, the, the Ukrainians, who also have lost a lot. Um, the thing to remember here is Russia is a lot bigger than Ukraine is, about three times the population. And in a war of attrition, uh, that doesn't uh, favor 
uh, Ukraine over time. The advantage the Ukrainians have is given the nature of this war, which is basically an artillery war, largely static, a lot of trenches and things like that, it's going to be hard for either side to conquer lots of territory quickly. Um, and that we've seen that now for six, uh, six months or so. And uh, one does have to then wonder if at what point both sides agree that things aren't going to change in a fundamental way and therefore it's time to figure out what peace terms uh, might be. We're not there yet, uh, but I think we're, we will get there uh, eventually. And that's, again, why uh, American leaders and countries that are supporting Ukraine should be realistic in their rhetoric and not raise hopes uh, that people can get an outcome that probably is not feasible or within the realm of possibility. But in the last uh, couple of minutes, Stephen Walt, there is a built-in asymmetry. Russia's territory is not really being touched, whereas it's able to pound and destroy Ukraine, where the Ukrainians can't really strike back at Russia. And the only leveler is, is Western arms. And meanwhile, Ukraine is obviously suffering casualties about which they're very secretive. So I think if you look at this, pull back and look at it with a cold eye, unfortunately, Russia does have the long-term advantage, doesn't it? Well, yes and no. Um, the uh, Ukrainians cannot strike Russia, but then again, Russia cannot strike uh, countries outside Ukraine that are supporting Ukraine. And the coalition backing Ukraine you know, has a combined GDP of over $40 trillion compared to Russia's $1.8 So there's a lot of industrial potential and a lot of military potential that has already uh, aided Ukraine and can continue to aid Ukraine. Um, as I said a moment ago, you know, it's Ukraine's B team and Russia's B team. The, the one uh, asset that Ukraine has is, is it is getting access to a lot of sophisticated Western uh, military technology and especially American military intelligence. Uh, which is quite good and I think is providing them with uh, a lot of information about what the Russians are doing, what they're planning, where their forces are and things like that. And that's all uh, to Ukraine's advantage. I don't think that means Ukraine is going to suddenly wipe the field and drive the Russians off their uh, land. But I also don't think the Russians are going to be able to make additional gains in Ukraine as well. So uh, unfortunately, what that means is this war is likely to last a little longer. And the sanctions, which the U.S. and NATO seem to think would bring Putin to his senses, they clearly are not working. Uh, they're not working as well as we thought. They're clearly having an effect on, on Russia. Russia would be in much better shape if the sanctions didn't exist. But they have found ways around them the way uh, states usually do. And part of what will happen over the next year is, of course, uh, U.S. and other efforts to you know, close as many of those loopholes as they're uh, currently exploiting to make it, uh, even if they're able to evade some of the sanctions, to make sure that doing so is itself costly and so that Russia will get weaker over time. Well, Stephen Wald, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Always fun talking with you, Ian. Well, thank you, Stephen. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Walt, who's a columnist at Foreign Policy Magazine and the Robert and Renee Belfer Professor of International Affairs at Harvard University. He's the author of a number of books, including The Origins of Alliances, Revolution and War, Taming American Power, The Global Response to U.S. Primacy. His latest book is The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. And his latest article at Foreign Policy Magazine is The Conversation About Ukraine is Cracking Apart.
We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into a letter to the leaders of the House and Senate from 200 economists, including former chairs and vice chairs of the Fed, as well as five Nobel laureates, urging Congress to pass the debt ceiling to avoid a dangerous and unnecessary economic crisis. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Betsy Stevenson, who is a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan. She's also a faculty research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a visiting professor of economics at the University of Sydney, a research fellow at the Center for Economic Policy Research and a fellow at the IFO Institute of Economic Research in Munich and serves as on the executive committee of the American Economic Association. She served as a member of the Council of Economic Advisers from 2013 to 2015, where she advised President Obama on social policy, labor markets, and trade issues, and also serves as the chief economist of the U.S. Department of Labor from 2010 to 2011, advising the Secretary of Labor on labor policy and participating as the Secretary's deputy to the White House economic team. Welcome to Background Briefing, Betsy Stevenson. It's great to talk with you today. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Betsy. And you are among 200 signatories uh, to a letter addressed to Speaker McCarthy, Majority Leader Schumer, Minority Leader Jeffries, and Minority Leader McConnell, urging them to raise the debt ceiling to avoid a dangerous and unnecessary economic crisis. And you are among uh, former chairs and vice chairs of the Federal Reserve, the Council of Economic Advisers, former director of the National Economic Council, former secretaries and assistant secretaries, and former chief economist, which is yourself, of the U.S. Department of Labor, and five Nobel laureates, all are signatories. So, one, do you think you're going to get their attention? And two, are they going to act on it? Well, um, I certainly hope they pay attention. And um, I think it is really important uh, that we come out and state something that many people might think is is obvious. But um, simply not paying your debt is not a way to manage your budget. And in particular, at the national level, when we're talking about the United States not paying their debt has really dire consequences that will be extremely hard to undo. So some of those consequences are potentially paying higher interest rates for a very, very long time. That will mean either having to raise taxes even further to pay for this, uh, the negative effects of, of not paying the debt, of not raising the debt ceiling, or cutting spending even further to not to to get more, not to bring down the deficit, but to service our debt. So, you know, I think Congress wants to have debates about how much should be spent each year. They absolutely should have that, but it just shouldn't be done in a way that is tethered to the question of whether they should pay their debt. When people loan money to the United States, they trust the United States to honor its commitments. 
And people who are, say, getting Social Security payments, they expect the government to keep making those those payments, right? They paid into the system. Uh, they don't want something as arbitrary as a debt ceiling to limit the pay, whether they get paid or when they get paid. But this is all happening because of a group, a caucus in the House known as the Freedom Caucus, and former Speaker Boehner referred to them as legislative terrorists. So you have a game of chicken going on here between the kind of Marjorie Taylor Green people who have a lot of sway over the Speaker who got his job as a result of caving into them. So this is not your father's or grandfather's Republican Party. These are not conservatives. These are right-wing radicals. And I don't know whether you can be assured that reason and rationality is going to prevail. Um, I think that that's a really frightening uh, thing you just laid out, but I I tend to agree with you um, that I'm a little bit more worried now than I've ever been before. Um, and I think the reason I'm worried to make it a little bit more concrete is just that I don't actually understand what it is that they're hoping to get. Um, we could eliminate all government spending that's discretionary. You know, when you think about when Congress um, appropriates funding for, um, you know, things like the Department of Labor or, um, you know, all this, the stuff that we that we think of government as doing, and we still wouldn't actually eliminate our need to raise the debt ceiling. And so nobody thinks we're going to wipe it out to zero. The big issue is entitlements. Um, entitlements are the big bucket name that's given to Social Security, Medicaid. And the reason they're called entitlements is because, um, you know, Congress isn't supposed to authorize spending on that every year. People, a commitment's been made to people. People paid into a system and they expect to, to get payments out. But that's where the big money is. And so if they're really looking to reduce our to mean, you know, to, to try to end our need to borrow in the future, they're going to they're looking to make cuts to those programs. And we did see some Republicans come straight out and say, that's what we want to do. The Republicans have walked away from that. They no longer seem to want to to touch these big programs. And so then the real question is, you know, what are they looking for and how is it related to the debt ceiling? And I I think, you know, what they're looking for is not clear. And it's also what is clear is that it's not really related to the debt ceiling. They're going to have to raise the debt ceiling no matter what. And I think what would be better would be for uh, members of Congress to raise the debt ceiling and then have real debates about spending when it comes time to authorize the next budget. Well, um, the Treasury's doing all kinds of <laughs> manipulations and tricks to stave off the inevitable, but we're getting close to the cliff, aren't we not, Betsy? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, you know, if you want to think about what Treasury's doing, is you know, think about if you're getting to a situation where you just don't have enough money to pay your bills, what do you do? Uh, who will give you a deferral? How can you, you know, uh, how can you make a payment here that helps 
a, a you know that's more important or higher priority and allows you to delay somewhere else like they're doing a lot of what they you know these these juggling acts because uh, there's obviously a lot of money there. What can we juggle around so that we're never actually defaulting on something? But at some point, that is kind of a house of cards that falls apart, and they have to just, you know, not make payments on time. Um, you know, nobody really knows when that date will be, and it actually is as simple as something like, you know, we are in the middle of tax season. Payments are going to be coming in. Uh, pay- we're going to get a better read after all those tax payments come in. Where are we in terms of revenue? Where are we in terms of of payments? And I think we'll hear from the Treasury with a better deadline on exactly when they need to raise the debt ceiling by um, before we default in the next, uh, you know, in the coming months. But from President Biden's position, they're playing chicken with him, right? So what does he do? Because I think the problem is that, you know, they're trying to extort cuts, and some of them are quite draconian, and even into Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, etc. And that's a red line, and that's been established, although it's been made clear lately, Senator Scott and others have suggested cutting or sunsetting uh, Social Security, and there's been a huge backlash, and they've had had to kind of backtrack on that. So that's not exactly popular even amongst republicans but at the end of the day it's it's what they i think their strategy the radicals strategy is that they can blame it on biden saying you know you're the one that wouldn't give in so when you're playing chicken how does biden not give in well i i think that the american people understand that it's the responsibility to raise the debt ceilings not the responsibility of the president to give in to every single demand. I mean, if we believe that he's responsible and he needs to give in to any demand, they could demand everything, right? That's, you know, that right. that's where the analogy of the idea of a terrorist uh, or someone who's taken someone hostage. Essentially, what you just described is a situation of, well, this, this group of people takes the, um, you know, the the financial situation of the United States hostage and threatens to wreak financial havoc that will hurt all Americans. Whose responsibility is it to solve that problem? Is it President Biden's responsibility to appease the hostage takers or is it the responsibility of the hostage takers to not take hostages? But how can he call their bluff? That's the problem, isn't it? Well, I think at that some that's point or actually... other, because they're not necessarily rational. So, at a certain point, he's got to do the right thing, hasn't he? And, well, and w- would that involve any kind of compromise? I mean, I think the public may understand it, but I don't know that these Freedom Caucus people care. But I, I think that what's really important is that we need the the blame to be on people who don't raise the debt ceiling because otherwise this problem is going to get worse year after year. So I agree. I think you're sort of saying, let's break this into two things. If they manage to let this thing go over a cliff, whose fault is it? And there, I think it's the people who refuse to raise the debt ceiling. There's another question, which is, okay, well, maybe the group of people really doesn't care about the negative consequences for the United States. They don't care about 
the higher interest rates will face. They don't care about the people who won't get checks. They don't care about uh, a financial crisis that could put, uh, you know, it could raise unemployment, could cost people uh, their jobs, their livelihoods. Um, Then what should Biden do? And obviously he needs to come to something that can drag people who don't care about the negative consequences over the line. Uh, But I don't think you cater to the person who's least likely. I think you try to find who's on the margin and he needs to get exactly the, you know, the number of people he needs to get to get this done. Um, You know, what I what really has to happen is we have to end this. Um, We cannot we should not and cannot go on with year after year threatening to default on the money that the U.S. government owes because of here's a political thing I want. Because if we do this, it could spread into all sorts of political things. It doesn't just have to be about the budget because, again, there's no real connection between the budget and whether we pay our debt. That these are in in some very real ways separate conversations, right? The, we should be talking as equally about how much revenue we're bringing in if what we really are caring about is the debt. What I would like to see is them just abolish the idea of a debt ceiling. Now, there are some people who, who would howl and say, boy, if we abolish the debt ceiling, then they'll never have discussions about the debt. So, okay, maybe we need to do something different. That different thing is not should we or should we not pay the debt, but maybe we need a different kind of trigger. What if instead of raising the debt ceiling, we had a trigger that would raise taxes across the board uh, if we didn't raise the debt ceiling? And now we would have a <laughs> would have a, a different set of people wanting a different set of things if the counterfactual of not raising the debt ceiling, if instead of it being we're defaulting on our debt, it was we're going to see across the board tax increases. Uh, everybody's going to pay 3% more in their taxes unless they raise the debt ceiling. You'd have a different debate. Or we could have something where it was tax increases and spending cuts. Again, you'd have a trigger there that was a little bit more, uh, a little bit more neutral and would force a different kind of debate. This debate, default on the debt or else, um, you know, it, I, I think that it causes harms with no real potential for gains. Well, just in closing, I mean, it's an extraordinary situation to be in, and it goes back to a 1917 law during the World War One. So it's antiquated. It's out of date at the very least, right? Yes. I, I mean, there's no real, there's no really good policy reason for why we would have both, uh, you know, a, a constitution that says that the U.S. should honor its debts and, you know, debt has the full faith of the United States behind it when the U.S. borrows. And, oh, yeah, but Congress has to approve paying that debt every year. Those two things just don't go together. So I agree with you that I think the idea, you know, this is put in more for political reasons and more about what kind of control does Congress feel it has versus the president and Congress wanting to be able to be the one who authorizes 
you know, increases in borrowing. But the reality is Congress also authorizes our spending. And if what they want, if what they care about is how much we're spending relative to how much revenue we're taking in, then they need to have real conversations about spending and tax revenue so that they can try to uh, bring down the deficit so that our debt grows a little bit more slowly. Those are real conversations. You shouldn't be threatening to uh, stiff the people who have in good faith lent us money. Well, Betsy Stevenson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It was great talking with you. Thanks for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Betsy Stevenson, who's a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan. She's also a faculty research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a visiting professor of economics at the University of Sydney and a research fellow of the Center for Economic Policy Research and a fellow at the IFO Institute of Economic Research in Munich and serves on the executive committee of the American Economic Association. And she served as a member of the Council of Economic Advisors from 2013 to 2015, where she advised President Obama on social policy, labor markets and trade issues, and also served as the chief economist of the United States Department of Labor from 2010 to 2011, advising the Secretary of Labor on labor policy and participating as the Secretary's deputy to the White House economic team. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a different perspective on the demonstrations that took place a week ago against President Lopez Obrador's Plan B reforms of the National Election Institute, which the American press portrayed as a power grab instead of demonstrations organized by the opposition. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Mexico City is John Milt Ackerman, an author as well as the director of the University Program of Studies in Democracy, Justice, and Society. He's a researcher at the Institute for Legal Research and editorial director of the Mexico Law Review of the National Autonomous University of Mexico, and he's contributed to many publications in the U.S., Mexico, and the U.K. on the topics of corruption, control, elections, transparency, accountability, autonomous institutions, and citizen participation. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Mill Ackerman. Thank you, Ian. A real pleasure to be on with you. Congrats to all your great work. Well, thank you, uh, John. And a week ago, Sunday, there were enormous demonstrations in Mexico City Zocalo, in defense of Mexico's fragile democracy. Hundreds of thousands showed up in town squares in over 100 cities throughout Mexico and in eight countries, including the United States, where there were a number of demonstrations in Austin, Brownsville, Chicago, Houston, Los Angeles, Miami, New York, San Antonio, and Washington, D.C. And it's very hard to understand why President Lopez Obrador would want to somehow undermine the Autonomous Election Board, the Institute of National Elections, known by its acronym INE, since that was the very body that brought him to power and ended 71 years of corrupt rule by the pre-party who basically controlled the elections and decided that they would win them all. So how do you explain this, uh, John? 
Well, there's a long history behind the scene. I don't know how much time we actually have to talk about it, but um, so we need to understand the the context here, Ian. There's a long historical context of what's actually going on. I don't know how much time we actually have to talk about all the details, but this electoral institute is not what it's being uh, portrayed as being in the foreign media. And also the electoral reform by uh, Lopez Obrador is also being distorted in international media. Indeed, I would even, I could possibly speak of a sort of an international uh, um, strategy to attack this electoral reform the same day uh, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, but a dedicated uh, front page uh, um, articles about this issue before the march. Of course, the march itself was an important historical moment that needed to be reported on, but it even seemed as if the international uh, press was sort of preparing and participating in the organization of this march. Uh, now, there's not to, to just disqualify what happened. We need to understand what's actually happening, but we need to do this in historical context. The first point is that this electoral institute, uh, uh, yes, was given autonomy in the 1990s, uh, but uh, this autonomy was then captured by the powers that be, by the private uh, oligarchic interests and the um, political interests of the old uh, regime, the old authoritarian priest regime. And uh, the institute was used in 2006 uh, to basically uh, commit fraud against uh, Lopez Obrador. His uh, first bid for presidency in 2006 was uh, uh, eliminated uh, because of the uh, partial use and abuse of power by this electoral institute. Uh, and it's for that reason that he had to wait until 2018, because in 2012 there are also uh, vast irregularities in electoral, in electoral um, sphere. Uh, until 2018, he became... Uh, president. So this uh, autonomous institute uh, has actually been quite complicit with electoral fraud. And so that's the basic context. And so Lopez Obrador, now he is president, and he has presented, now has been passed, this electoral reform, which tries to attend to some of the issues within this electoral institute, which allowed it to uh, uh, to be complicit with electoral fraud in 2006 and even in 2012. And so uh, the electoral reform is not to weaken the Institute, but to clean it up inside. Um, the problem is that uh, that's touching on very important economic and political interests, and those are the ones who have organized uh, this huge march. Now, this is mixed with uh, a normal process of... Uh, weakening of presidential authority in the Mexican context. You have a six-year term with no re-election. We're now in the last two years of the Lopez Obrador presidency. And so he's just, uh, losing some of his control over politics. And as the, many people attended this march, uh, not just because it was organized by these political and economic interests, but out of authentic a need to protest against different policies by the Lopez Obrador administration. So there's a, there's a mix of of these two factors, um, but it is important to look beyond those headlines. The international press, it's its terrible. I, I, I don't know if it's gotten worse or I've just become more aware of it, <laughs> but uh, it, it's, it's typical. When you have a progressive president in Latin America, the international press tends to uh, emphasize the protest against him and uh, reduce the, the, the coverage of the, the more positive aspects of his administration. So he won in 2018 by a landslide and took 
what, 22 out of 32 governorships and took the lower house of the Congress along with the Senate. So he's in a very strong position. So what are the prospects then for the 2024 elections? Does the opposition have a chance? Well, he did lose support in the, in the midterms. In 2018, there was a landslide, 53% of the vote. Uh, he won by 30 million votes. Uh, there was a, it was a landslide, as you mentioned. Uh, the midterm elections in 2021 uh, did imply setbacks. This is normal in any kind of uh, midterm elections. But uh, he, he lost some of his control over Congress, although he has continued to accumulate uh, governorships. Uh, the big president's election of 2024 is going to be interesting. It looks like his party, uh, Morena, will probably win because of the uh, general acceptance and high public approval ratings for Lopez Obrador um, to up to today, even though he's lost some of his control, hegemonic control of politics, he's still very, very popular. And the opposition has not actually put forth any convincing candidates, even at this big march. And this is the important thing about this march. This march was organized by the political opposition. It was not, in its origins, a civil society protest. It was organized by the PRI, by the PAN, by uh, it's the opposition politicians, um, by big corporations, etc. Although there was lots of authentic citizen participation. Uh, but at the, the speakers, for instance, at that march on Sunday, one was an ex-Supreme uh, Court justice, another uh, a journalist, but neither of them really have sort of a, a, a clear political trajectory. And the leaders of the opposition are really the same guys who have been there for the last 30, 40 years. And so there are no new faces on this opposition. There's no new clear project for the future of Mexico. And that's uh, also going to play strongly in favor of, of Morena, Lopez Obrador's party. So it looks like we'll probably have a continuation in 2024 for another six years of the Lopez Obrador um, political coalition. Uh, we don't know who's going to be his successor. That's one of the big questions today in Mexican politics. There are three, four, five different um, people who are vying for the, the, the Morena presidential candidacy. Uh, each one of them has different ideological profiles, history, of public um, service, and um, that's going to determine a lot in terms of what happens in the next in the next uh, sexenio, as we call them, six year six year periods. Uh, uh, throughout Latin America, there are different examples. You know, where we have a, a, a someone kind of like a Dilma Rousseff profile, someone more like a Lenin Moreno profile, like in in Ecuador, uh, it's someone more like Luis Arce. Each one of these different leftist governments throughout Latin America. Uh, when the original leader has to leave or the new one comes in, uh, there's always a, a moment of instability and lots of questions about what's actually going to happen to the direction of political change. So how much is this situation now in the hands of the Supreme Court and the Chief Justice Norma Pena? Yes, the electoral law has been uh, brought to court. Uh, the Supreme Court will have to decide in the next two months, May at the latest, because uh, the rules determine that uh, all this has to be resolved about a year before the elections. Uh, it's likely that the court may strike down some of the articles in this electoral reform. They could even strike down the whole thing. It's not an easy thing to do, as in the United States as well. You need to get, in this case, to actually strike out an article in the law. You need to have eight 
of the 11 votes in uh, the Supreme Court to, to do that. Um, Lopez Obrador himself has appointed four justices. So if the four Lopez Obrador justices defend the electoral law, it will stand because the maximum amount of votes would be seven. But if one or another of those Lopez Obrador appointees decides to vote with um, the other justices, then possibly this law could be struck down. Uh, I do personally have some issues with the law. I don't think it's a perfect law. Uh, it does weaken, in many ways, the electoral institutions insofar as how they can defend the rights of citizens, particularly militants of political parties or those who want to be candidates. Uh, but in general, the real central uh, part of the, of the reform is to democratize the electoral institutions internally and uh, to make them more efficient. The amount of spending done on these institutions is stratospheric. I mean, they, they, stratospheric. They, in the United States, you probably don't even understand what we're talking about because these are you know, enormous bureaucracies, which are very important in terms of what they do, organizing elections. Uh, but by no means do we need these monsters <laughs> that you know bureaucracies tend to explode, feed on themselves, uh, expand uh, uh, constantly unless uh, law or politicians intervene to you know, put things in order. That's the that's the central issue. They're, they're not taking away, this is very important, the autonomy of the Institute. The Institute is, remains as a uh, fully public autonomous institution. Um, they're not eliminating the national structure of the Institute. The Institute still is present in the entire country, still responsible for the federal elections. Uh, they're not eliminating the issue of how the citizens are the ones who actually count the votes. That's also very important. That's an achievement of the 90s in which uh, in each voting booth, there are um, citizens who are who by lottery are selected to be the ones who actually count, do the vote counting. So they're not changing the electoral um, uh, ID card, which is a highly um, uh, trusted ID card, which is used even for you know, opening a bank account or anything. Uh, Mexicans do to in the normal legal life. They use their IFE card or their INE card. That's not being changed. So you know the basic um, achievements of the struggle for democracy over the last thirty years are not being affected by this by this law. Uh, it's more a question of a, a struggle of 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 interest and power over who gets to control that electoral institute, which over the last thirty years has been controlled by uh, bureaucracy, really at the service of the. Political opposition. Uh, they used to the political. They used to be the, the the political regime in power, and now it's the the political opposition. So that's the that's the political um, uh, foundation or, or, or roots for, for what we're seeing today. So, in other words, this demonstration took place last Sunday, uh, where most of the protesters were dressed in pink and white, the colours of the National Election Institute (INE). They've been co-opted by the opposition. But the fact that you have this very popular national ID, which we don't have here in the United States, we have a completely balkanized electoral system, which is easily gamed. And the obsession seems to be, particularly on the Republican side, to, to try and find all kinds of trickery to stop people from voting, complicated rules, uh, registration. No other democracy has such a cumbersome and deliberately difficult system that the United States has. So we could learn a lot from Mexico uh, with its electoral ID. So there are obviously aspects about the INE that are very popular, right? Exactly. Yes, it's actually structurally, legally, 
the National Electoral Institute and the Electoral Tribunal with a special set of judges dedicated uh, exclusively to resolving electoral disputes. For you guys, uh, it's the Supreme Court who has to, in the end, uh, decide electoral dispute, and they're not really trained for that issue, and there's a whole political question doctrine, etc. But here in, in Mexico, we have our own tribunals. We have the Autonomous Electoral Institute. Um, all of that is fantastic, exactly. Our uh, institutional and legal uh, organization in Mexico is much better than in the United States. And that is not being changed by this reform. That's the important thing to point out. Um, we're still going to have an autonomous INE. We're still going to have the electoral cards. We're still going to have the citizens who are counting the votes. Uh, we're still going to have a, a strict control over spending. For instance, in, in Mexico, the parties are not allowed to hire out uh, 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 advertisements on television. Uh, they uh, The time for on television is distributed uh, without costs to the parties or to the taxpayer uh, to the between the different parties and the candidates based on their performance in past elections using a, a sophisticated formula. Uh, but it's there's absolutely total prohibition to anybody, even uh, civil society groups or businessmen, to hire out or uh, uh, television advertisements in favor or against any of the candidates. So this creates a more level playing field in which money is not the most important thing as it is in the United States. And so, yes, there are all, all of these great advantages to the Mexican electoral system. And the important point to point out is that uh, exactly that is not being changed at all. What's happening is that there's a, a restructuring of the Institute, which from my point of view can potentially make it more autonomous, not less. It's not like the government is actually taking over the Institute, it's that the Institute is being freed from this political control of the old regime. Uh, and so it's a complicated issue, but I think, and, and right now it's very important, right now four of the electoral councils are going to be replaced. That's not because of the electoral law. This is a, a normal process every three years. Uh, four members have to, three or four, depending on, on, on the specific year, are going to be changed. And we're right now in the, in the midst of that process. That, to me, is the most important process. Who are going to be the people who occupy the new um, spaces in the National um, General Council of the, of the Electoral Institute? And we hope that those will be independent uh, experts who know about the law and will be able to defend democracy against uh, all different kinds of, uh, of, of political uh, attempts to affect uh, democracy in Mexico. Well, I must say that we could learn a lot from Mexico's electoral system, particularly the national ID card, which means, I mean, the, the Republicans keep pushing this lie, this canard, that there's such a thing as voter fraud. And if you have a national ID that says you are who you are, it eliminates all of those problems. And voting should be really simple. And it is in most democracies, except the United States. And right next door in Mexico, it is simple. And, and it's effective. And it's all... And taking money out of politics, my God. You know, we have an electoral system here that's entirely based on money. So he who has the most money wins. That's often the case. So I thank you for joining us and uh, filling us in on what we thought was a big problem down there, but uh, you've indicated it's not such a problem. Thank you so much, Ian. I, I think what we're seeing are the normal process of democracy. The opposition is organizing. They're grabbing a, a, a topic which, which you know helps them to articulate and rally up their bases. This is part of democracy. This is the government opposition. The problem is to see this as somehow an attack on democracy to the country. I think it's a, uh, a symbol of the healthiness of democracy in Mexico, that we have a, 
a robust opposition. And, and uh, we'll see what happens next year. The 2024 president elections will be a major moment. And I hope we can, we can stay in touch. Thank you very much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with John Millackerman, who's the author as well as the director of the University Program of Studies on Democracy, Justice, and Society. He's also a researcher at the Institute for Legal Research and the editorial director of the Mexico Law Review of the National Autonomous University of Mexico. And he's contributed to many publications in the U.S., Mexico, and the U.K. on the topics of corruption control, elections, transparency, accountability, autonomous institutions, and citizen participation. And he joined us from Mexico City. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Oh